great privilege to be here again. Thank you for allowing us to be here. I trust God will use this word to be encouragement to you. I'm going to ask you to open with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to look at what Paul writes to Timothy. As you're doing that, I ask you to think about this. Have you ever lost something incredibly valuable? Or have you had something stolen of great value? Um, Though probably most of us have lost something of great value or have had something stolen that was valuable or important to us, I don't think any of us have ever had something stolen quite as valuable as the Van Gogh painting named the poppy flower was. That painting was stolen from an Egyptian museum in 2010 and was estimated to be worth $55 million. Now, you'd think something that valuable would be guarded very well. But when you read about the details of that day, the attorney general there, when speaking about it, was reporting that 36 of the 43 security cameras were not working that day. And even the seven, he said, weren't completely functioning correctly. They also had individual alarms on every painting in the museum, but those weren't functioning correctly either. And reportedly, there were only nine people that had even gone to the museum on that day. Now, I know you might be thinking what I was thinking, too. Perhaps it was an inside job, right? Um, But this painting was stolen, and it was worth $55 million. And on top of that, it was the second time it had been stolen. It had been stolen in 1978 as well and had been missing for about 10 years when they finally recovered it. You would think something so valuable would be protected and guarded very carefully. And yet it wasn't in that case. Well, we as believers in Jesus Christ have been entrusted with God's word and it is very valuable and precious. And we're going to see in 1 Timothy uh, verses 1, Chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, how Paul is urging Timothy to take care of the Word of God and make sure it's taught properly in the church, to make sure the goal of the teaching and the outcome of their lives is driven by love and that they'll be protected uh, from threats. Paul is challenging Timothy in this passage to protect the valuable Word of God. We see in verses 3 through 11, let's go ahead and read there how Paul is urging Timothy to protect the Word of God. Now, just to back up briefly, in verses 1 and 2, we have a standard introduction from Paul here where he is introducing himself and and introducing the fact in verse 2 that he's writing to Timothy, his true child in the faith, and talks about Timothy being his precious uh, son, in the Lord, they had a special relationship. And then he begins to challenge him here in verse 3, going on through verse 11. We see it says, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not 
to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men strain from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Before we delve more deeply into that, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll talk about how Paul challenges Timothy to protect sound doctrine in the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us the privilege to have your word in written form, that we have our own personal copies which they didn't have back in that day. We thank you that you have revealed your will to us through it, that we may know you and we may know what you want us to do. Help us to be challenged to be faithful stewards of your word as we read this passage in 1 Timothy and think about what you've said and what it means. Help us to apply it. Help us to have the goal of living a life filled with love for you and love for our brethren and love for the lost who need you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to see your first point there. Number one is that Paul is urging Timothy to have pure teaching, pure teaching. To protect God's word, there needs to be pure teaching. Teaching that is uh, in alignment with is teaching the principles of Scripture, not things that are contrary to it. He is challenging Timothy to have pure teaching in the church. He says in verse 3, as we read, I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So point number one there is pure teaching, and letter A is consistent teaching teachers. There was to be a consistency among the teachers that they were teaching things consistent with what Paul had taught them, with what Paul had instructed Timothy, and Timothy was passing on to them. There was to be a consistency among the teachers. Now, we have the great privilege in our day and age of having God's Word written, that we're able to hold it. We have it in its entirety, and we have many, most of us probably have multiple copies of it. But in that day, they did not have the full New Testament as it wasn't all written at that point. And, and there was, therefore, an even greater need and an urgency for them 
to have teachers that were going to teach God's word and not things of their own invention. They were going to, Timothy and the men that he was working with were to teach God's word and not stray from that. Now, because we have God's word in written form today doesn't mean this isn't a need for us today. It still is. We need to have pure teaching in our churches. We need to have consistent teaching in our churches. We need to make sure that what's happening in the church is based upon the teaching of Scripture. Now, we as Baptists are very uh, commonly careful to make sure that we have our Bibles, that we're reading our Bibles, that we're listening to the messages from God's Word. And if you had a teacher, you had a preacher that wasn't doing that, they wouldn't be back again, right? So there is an expectation of that in our churches, but there can also be subtle ways in which people who are teaching begin to teach their own ideas, begin to stray from the Word of God, begin to fill their messages and their content with things that don't match up with the Scripture. There is a need in a church to be careful to make sure the pastors and teachers of a church are following what God's Word says and carefully teaching it. And that's what Timothy is being urged to do here, is to have consistency among the teachers. Now, note here that Timothy is Paul is the one that took over in the church of Ephesus and is pastoring that church in Ephesus. So Paul is writing to him as pastor in Ephesus and that it's ultimately Timothy's job to make sure that the teaching in the church is consistent. Now, notice also letter B, they were to have proper content, not only Pure teaching, but proper content. Consistent teachers, proper content. In verse 4, he says that they are not to be teaching myths and endless genealogies. They're not to be teaching myths and endless genealogies. Now, uh, a lot of what they dealt with in the New Testament time period were people that came out of the Jewish religion, or had familiarity with the Jewish religion. So there tended to be a lot of people that were fascinated with the genealogies and probably had all kinds of stories and uh, passed on fables about those kinds of things and the significance of people listening to genealogies. Probably not a significant temptation in our day that we focus on genealogies. Uh, most of us, we get to First Chronicles, right? And, and sometimes we... Uh, have a hard time getting through those first nine chapters because it's so filled with genealogies, and sometimes the significance is lost on us. But we do live in a society that is filled with fantasy ideas, with mythful things, things that are imaginary. We can hardly go home and not be exposed to things that are mythical or imaginary. Not that the imagination or the mind itself, it, it's wrong to think about those things. The point is, though, the teaching in the church, the preaching in the church, is to be guided and match up with God's Word, not the imaginations of our own minds. 
the goal of someone who is preaching, the goal of somebody who is teaching is not to be innovative and make up stuff. The goal is to be faithful to teach the content of what God has revealed. God has given us the truth. We need to be faithful to teach it. And notice the result of this kind of wrong teaching that they were doing is it led to speculation. It led to questions or confusion. Who is the author of the confusion? Satan. That's right. The Scriptures tells us it's Satan. Our faith is based upon the sure Word of God. And it is to be the content of our teaching. Now, again, I know in our Baptist churches, we're very careful. I know your pastor is very careful about who speaks, who teaches. But there are subtle ways in which things can slip in, and we need to be careful. I'll just give you one example. I don't know what material you use here in your church, but my wife and I have talked at times about some of the material that we get exposed to that our children would have access to or be aimed at children. Some of these pre-made material sets that come for children, sometimes the things mention a Bible character's name, but other than that have very little connection to the content of what God's Word actually is teaching in the particular passages they reference. Even down to the level of little children, we need to be careful about the content that is taught. We make sure it is God's Word that we're teaching. Not just traditions passed on, not just our own fanciful ideas, but God's Word. And we also need to have the correct view. Letter C there the correct view of our responsibility in communicating God's Word. He says here in verse 4 that these people are teaching myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than what they should be viewing their job as. What does he say their job is? Their job is the administration of God, which is by faith. What? Now, what does that mean, the administration of God? The idea is that of stewardship. As preachers, as teachers of God's Word, we are entrusted with faithfully, accurately communicating what God has said. It's a stewardship responsibility. I'm managing what belongs to somebody else. I am managing the Word of God, in the sense, managing it of how I'm faithfully communicating it as a preacher and teacher. Our correct view on teaching responsibilities is that of being a steward. We are to be faithful with what God has entrusted us. And that's pastors, teachers at every level in the church. We are to have the correct view. We are stewards. We are stewards. I want you to see, secondly, that we are also to remember the proper target of our preaching and teaching of God's Word. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, Paul says, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
the goal, the outcome, the end that we seek with preaching and teaching God's word is a life filled with love for God, love for fellow believers, and a love and compassion for the lost. That's the goal. That's the outcome that should happen with our teaching. That should be what we're seeking to happen, change lives that people will love God, love other believers, and have a love for the lost. That's the goal. We need to remember the target. The target is not, as a teacher, as a preacher, to become a well-known or a popular person. If any of you have been teaching much at all, especially working with teens or adults, you know sometimes teaching and preaching God's Word can be very unpopular because you have to say things that you know specific people might be having an issue with and what you're going to say is going to go contrary to how they're living or what they think and it can be a source of conflict. But even that confrontation with the Word of God, the aim is love, that they would be corrected. The goal in teaching God's Word, the goal in preaching God's Word is love, that we're motivated by love in doing it but also that our lives would be those filled with love in how we live. And we talked about having a love for God. We're told in Matthew 22, Jesus tells us, you want to sum up the entire Old Testament? Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That also essentially is summarizing what the Ten Commandments are about. The goal of the Christian life, the goal of Christian teaching is to live a life of love. Jesus also tells his disciples in John 13, 35, By this all men shall know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. That is going to be what distinguished them, was that they loved one another and therefore it would be known about them that they were followers of Christ. Is that how we think about our Christian life? Do we recognize the significance of love in our relationship with God and our relationship with others? Are we known in our neighborhood as a loving, tender, and compassionate person? Are we known in our own family as a loving, tender, compassionate person? It's a hallmark of what it means to be a Christian, that we love God and we love one another. And we have compassion for the lost. Now, part of the problem in our day and age is what does it mean, this idea of love? What does it really mean? We've had a lot of perversion in our society of the term love. It has been perverted to mean lots of things it doesn't really mean. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as the chapter about love. And let's look what it says there. I have to admit this concept that I'm going to share with you, which I think is significant and very helpful, hopefully you'll be encouraged by it as well, is actually something I came across in a 
in a commentary I was reading on this passage. But I want you to turn your attention to verse 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The first two statements about love, this person argued, I see it, it makes a lot of sense to me, perhaps you'll see merit in its simplicity as well, but the argument was the first two phrases, love is patient and love is kind, are actually summary statements under which you could put all the other concepts. Patience is the idea of enduring difficult and painful things that others do to you in a gracious way. It involves self-denial. Love is also kind. Kindness is actively seeking the interest of a different person or another person, even when it costs us greatly. That involves self-sacrifice. So love is self-denying. It's not about us. It's about putting up with people and lovingly accepting whatever they do to us. Because we love them, maybe we're in a relationship and we bear with them because we love them, or we're trying to reach them, we put up with things, or we actively, on the active side, seek their good even when it means it's going to cost us something to do so. As a simple illustration of that principle, I was just talking with my teenage son yesterday. He recently received a sizable financial gift from a family member. And my son, because he'd also done some other side jobs, he does a little lawn cutting business, so he's earned some money. He's been saving up. He's got some money set aside. He wanted to buy a computer. Well, with this money he had received from one of my uncles, he was able to take the money he had saved plus this money and was able to buy himself an inexpensive new laptop. And in explaining uh, to my son about how nice this was, what my uncle had done, we reviewed the fact that my uncle has a computer too. But my uncle's computer is probably in the neighborhood of 8 to 10 years old. And he has trouble getting online and getting things to work correctly. And yet, this uncle, not, not a believer, but this uncle gave a sizable gift. He, there, there's actually a scholarship program in my family, and it's actually to promote good grades. So the kid that gets the best grades in the family gets the scholarship. So Michael won it this year. So I was explaining to Michael how my uncle made a sacrifice. He could have used that money to get a better computer for himself. Instead, he gave, he did a kind thing so that Michael could get, he didn't know Michael was going to get a computer, but that's the result. Michael was able to get a computer with that money. That was a loving thing that that family member did. He sacrificed something for himself. Or the good of somebody else. That's love. Love is patient, self-denying. Love is kind, self-sacrificing, seeking the good of others. Paul says that's our goal, 1 Timothy 1.5. Our goal is to produce that. Now, we understand 
It's not us producing it as teachers. It's not us producing it as preachers. It's the Word of God with the work of the Spirit of God. What's the first fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love. Our goal is to see people respond to the Word of God in faith, believing what He said, and acting in loving obedience to God. That's the goal. And that should be our goal as those hearing the Word of God as well, that we would grow in love. Now, he does mention here three other requirements connected with the idea of love. He says, first of all, that we are to have a pure heart, a pure heart, letter B. Each of these three things that he includes in relationship to love here have both an initial element to it in salvation and a continuing element. So with having a pure heart, having a good conscience, and having a sincere faith, those things all start at salvation. We are cleansed from the guilt of our sin, as we sang about in verse 3 of it as well. Our, the guilt of our sin has been dealt with, it's been paid for. We've been cleansed. We also have a good conscience as believers. Romans 5 talks about now as believers in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. We've been forgiven for those things that we've done wrong. And, in fact, the things we will do. It was all paid for. We have peace with God. We have a good conscience. And it all starts with a genuine faith. So there's an initial aspect to it, but there is also an ongoing maintenance of it involved as well. So I want you to see with me, we're going to focus on Hebrews 9, because I think these two passages, Hebrews 9 and Acts 24, illustrate this idea very well in relationship to the conscience. In Hebrews chapter 9, it talks about how our conscience is purged in relationship to our salvation. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14. It's always bad when the preacher's the last one there. He, almost there. Hebrews 9, 14. Didn't have it bookmarked. Um, not my normal preaching Bible. Romans 9, 24, or 9, 14 says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There you have it. In relationship to salvation, we have a cleansed conscience. We have a good conscience before God. But notice also with me in Acts chapter 24, where Paul talks about his conscience. Acts chapter 24, and verse 16. It says in Acts 24, 16, In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Now, is Paul saying, is the goal here that we perfectly never sin, therefore never go against our conscience? 
Of course, that would be the ideal. But the reality is, because we are sinners saved by grace, we still do sin. So is Paul saying that he's never sinned since being saved because he has a blameless conscience? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is he is unaware of any unresolved offense. So if he's sinned against God, he's confessed and dealt with that. If he's done something wrong to another person, he's confessed and dealt with that. He has striven to maintain a clean conscience. Uh, The idea here included would be that of having short accounts with God. My first pastor was the one that first introduced me to the idea of having short accounts with God. Are you familiar with that idea? The idea is when you sin, you don't wait a long time to resolve that. You quickly deal with it before the Lord so that you'll be uh, have that clear conscience. You'll have that resolved. It won't be holding back, answer to prayer, or um, God have to bring something in your life to get your attention to resolve that. You deal with it quickly. And we treat people the same way. We shouldn't prolong resolution of conflict or offense. We deal with it quickly so that we can maintain a good conscience. So in all of this, Paul is reminding Timothy of the real target. The target isn't self-promotion as a preacher or as a teacher. Our goal isn't to promote ourselves. That's not the target. Or maybe more subtle targets we might get wrong sometimes. If new visitors came to church, we'd all be excited about that. We can miss the mark, though, sometimes when we focus just purely on the numbers of getting new people. And, oh, it's so great, we had 20 new people, blah, 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 blah. No, it's not just about getting new people here. It's not even about getting just getting new members. It's about people being brought into a right relationship with God, truly coming to know Him as Lord and Savior, and us as a church body teaching and training them to obey everything that Christ has taught us. We can miss the target sometimes. We can be focused on the wrong things. Even good things, we have the wrong target. As a simple illustration of this, in the 2004 Olympics, that was 10 years ago now, so maybe um, if you were aware of this back then, you may have forgotten, but there was a U.S. Olympian in the shooting competition who was expected to get his second gold. He was on his 10th and final shot and was leading everyone, and all he needed to get was a 9.3 or higher to win the gold medal, or I'm sorry, he needed a 7.2 or higher to win the gold medal, and his previous lowest for the first nine was 9.3. So he was virtually a shoe-in to get the gold. But on that 10th and final shot, he lined it up, he shot bullseye. However, When he looked at the score, there was nothing there. He was confused. He's calling out to the judges, something's going on with the with the score. What's what's happening? What they found out happened was he was on lane two. 
and he had actually lined up the target on lane three. And even though it perfectly hit the bullseye, it was the wrong target. An Olympian can make that kind of mistake. We as believers can sometimes get lined up on the wrong things too. We can get really wound up about a particular issue, make a big deal out of something that isn't a big deal. We can get focused on the wrong things. Paul is reminding us, love, love for God, love for others, and love for the lost is where we should be focused. And maintaining a pure heart, a clean conscience, and a sincere faith. Number three, and I need to hurry, he also warns about being protected from threats. Now, some of these teachers that Paul was telling Timothy to confront have already made the mistake of doing the wrong kind of teaching. And he's explaining some of the things that they've done or how they've made errors. And he says in verse 6, he says they are, this is the crooked, letter A, crooked. He says in verse 6, For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. They have turned aside. They have gotten off the straight and narrow path. They've begun to teach things that aren't right. They've gone crooked. You may have heard this phrase too, but it's said about a river, that a river is crooked because it takes the path of least resistance. As a believer in Jesus Christ, as preachers, as teachers, we need to be faithful to maintain a focus on teaching the pure Word of God and keeping our hearts focused on loving God and loving others and not swerve away from that. These people were crooked. Letter B, they are also clueless. They're clueless. This is perhaps one of the the most amusing phrases Paul uses about is uh, some people that are in the wrong that you'll see in this book. Uh, verse 7, he says, they want to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. These people are bold. They're confident. And yet, they're clueless. They don't know what they're teaching. They're trying to, as we see uh, in verse 8, they're trying to teach about the law, but ultimately they're confused. Letter C, they're confused. They're teaching about the law and not understanding its purpose or its relationship to a New Testament believer. They're confused. The law referred to here in verse 8 is reference to the Mosaic law. And I trust you'll see that as we look at verses 9 and 10. We'll make it very, very explicit. Uh, look at verse 8. He says, but we know, or he said in verse 7, they're teaching the law. Verse 8, but we know that the law is good. The problem isn't the law, but you have to use it lawfully. Realizing, verse 9, the fact that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. And we'll go through this list in just a minute. But you've got to understand the purpose of the law. These people were confused. They're teaching the law as if the New Testament believers were supposed to carry out the obligations in the Mosaic Law. They're confused. New Testament believers aren't 
under the Mosaic law. We're not obligated to keep those things. We don't have feast days like are described there or do sacrifices described there because we're not under the Mosaic law. But before we move away to, uh, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verses 20 and 21 in just a minute here. But I want you to see in verses 9 and 10, he describes the Ten Commandments. Did you catch that when we read through it? He's referring to the Ten Commandments and the things he says about these people. He says the law, and he's referring to the Ten Commandments, it's not for a righteous person. It's for the unrighteous to show them that they're unrighteous and they don't match up so that we would turn to Christ. We would turn to God in faith, realizing we can't keep the law. We're sinners. We're disobedient. Verse 9, notice what he says. It's the lawless and rebellious, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane. Those three groupings all speak about the first four commandments. Profaning, that, uh, taking lightly that which is holy. God talks about using, not using his name lightly or profaning his name. Or the Sabbath is talked about, verse 4, uh, profaning or uh, treating that as unholy. Um, and obviously ungodly and sinners referring to those that are rebellious against God. But then look at from there on, we can walk down commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 with his list. Verse, uh, the, the first one there, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, that's number five, honor your father and mother. Number six, thou shalt not murder, for murderers, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery. Number seven, immoral men and homosexuals. Uh, thou shalt not steal. Verse 8, kidnappers, the worst form of stealing, stealing people. And um, thou shalt not bear false witness. Verse uh, Commandment 9, it says liars and perjurers. And then he sums up commandment number 10, thou shalt not covet, a pretty general uh, commandment anyway, basically saying any evil, sensual desire, something you crave sinfully for yourself, he says whatever else is contrary to sound teaching so the law is what he's referring to the old testament mosaic law but we as new testament believers don't live by the old testament mosaic law we instead are under the law of christ now i'm going to leave it to your pastor someday if he hasn't already to do a series on the law and the relationship to the new testament believer Uh, we don't have time to go into it tonight but we're going to look at first corinthians chapter 9 and just very briefly summarize what paul says about this in chapter 9 verse 20 and 21 he says to the jews i became as a jew so that i might win the jews to those who are under the law as under the law though not being myself under the law so that i might win those who are under the law verse 21 so he's saying, we're, I'm not, as a New Testament believer, I am not under the Old Testament Mosaic law. Verse 21, he does not then turn around and say, I have no law at all. Verse 21, he says, to those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So to summarize it very simply, We are under the law of Christ as New Testament believers, which simply means the teachings that Christ gave and are recorded in the New Testament Gospels 
and then expanded upon uh, and applied by the rest of the writers of the New Testament Scriptures. That's what we're under. We're not under the Mosaic Law. And Paul's point out here, these teachers are confused. They're confused about what they're supposed to be teaching. And in all of it, Paul's emphasizing to Timothy, he has a responsibility to ensure that God's word, the truth, is protected in the local church. And my challenge to you is that we have that responsibility as whether we're teaching at any level and also as members of the church, we are obligated to respond in a loving way and live out the truth so that the truth of God is accurately demonstrated in the local church and in our lives so that people that know us are seeing an accurate representation of the effect of the Word of God in the life of a disciple of Christ. We have an obligation to protect the truth by maintaining pure teaching, keeping the proper target in view of loving God, loving fellow believers, and having compassion on the lost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful encouragement from your word. Help us to keep the right focus. Help us to be patient and kind. I pray that you continue to help Ambassador Baptist Church to have pure teaching, that you continue to protect Jacob and the other teachers that you're using here. May your word continue to be taught faithfully, correctly, and may you help each one of us to be motivated out of love and to recognize our responsibility to live in love for you and to love others and those that are lost around us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.